God can take a broken situation and do something immensely better than I've ever imagined. Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, go to plainfieldchristian.com. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning. Glad you guys could be with us this morning. I want to start off in prayer and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to be here, to be together um, as a bunch of believers trying to figure out, Lord, how best to follow, to learn from your word. I pray, Lord, as James said, if we pray for wisdom, especially when we don't have it, you can give generously to all. So God, I ask for wisdom and that you would speak through me today. So we love you. Bless us as we study your text. Let us enjoy the day. It's in your son's name. Amen. Um, Before we go on a mission trip, which has been a while since we've done a mission trip, um, but before we go, we usually do training. And the training is geared to help people get a realistic perspective of what they're getting ready, of the reality they're getting ready to enter into, okay? Because when those two don't match, you get frustrated. And I know this, (laughs) I know this for a lot of reasons, and maybe you do too. So here's some examples through memes of times that you may have experienced this. The first one is have you ever tried to build a snowman and in your mind it should look like, well, but reality it's a big mud ball? Yeah, been there. How about go into a restaurant, you see the menu, you see what it should look like. Now, let me say a couple of things on this one. First off, if you're going to a restaurant and you're going to Burger King to get a hot dog, let me tell you the reality that's about to sink in in about 30 minutes. Okay, mistake number two. Maybe you ever tried baking something and you think it's gonna turn out one way and yet? (laughs) Or maybe you got a haircut and you want it, maybe it's a girl, you want a pixie cut and you think, well. (laughs) I had a buddy of mine in college, he cut my hair one time. And I can remember him going around my ears and all of a sudden just stopping. And I'm like, Nick, what happened? Did you mess up? Yes, he did. And what did we do? We buzzed my hair quick, all right? You've been there. What you guys missed out on, and this is last service, this is the best, right? Um, I felt this this morning. And you've seen this maybe with preachers is when I think my cue to come out on stage is one thing, lights are dim, bumpers going, and I walk out and I think it was Todd Dillon was like, what are you doing out here? I'm just setting down my notes. That's all I'm doing. (laughs) You've been there, right? Maybe we struggle. If you're a Kentucky fan right now, ooh, that that hurt a little bit, hey? Your bracket ain't looking so good, right? You've been there. When perception doesn't match reality. We mentioned this um, last time I was up on stage. We talked about a survey done with prisoners in England. And these prisoners were asked to rate themselves on different characteristics compared to other inmates and those outside of prison. And we said in almost all categories, they rated themselves as superior or better than those around them and outside of prison. One of those was law abidingness. They're in prison. You see, I think one of the things we as just individuals struggle with is what is known as the superiority illusion or the Dunning-Curig effect of thinking you are better than you actually are. Or maybe we'd say it this way, do you struggle with pride? 
Now, if you don't think you do, I'm getting ready to pop your bubble. No, um, let me give you some characteristics of prideful people and see if this rings true with you. Okay, you might struggle with pride if you struggle or find a lot of value in vanity, in your appearance or how you are perceived by others. I had a roommate or a friend in college who after practice, he would go work out and then stand and look at himself for 30 minutes in the mirror. I don't, I think he might have a problem. Um, competitiveness, this one's me. This is me all over. You don't like to lose. Matter of fact, if you do lose, you say, uh, one more game, one more time. No, 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 no. Because maybe your value is found in success and you can't, be, you can't lose. What if it's this one? A need to be right even in things that are inconsequential, things that don't matter. And it might look this way. It might look, when you make an apology, do you follow it with a but? Of, oh, I'm so sorry, but so-and-so did this. What that is, you see, you're trying to justify it. You, maybe you don't like to be wrong. I've got to be right all the time. And that could also lead to a stubbornness of when somebody tries to tell me I'm wrong, I don't listen. No, 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 I can't be wrong. You're wrong. I'm right. You might have a problem with pride. If you can't say no to somebody you love and find value in being so needed, you say yes to every ask, you might have a problem with pride. If you struggle to delegate tasks to other people, you might have a problem with pride. If you get up on this stage, and I'll say this because this is one I feel like a lot of ministers, worship leaders, pastors struggle with, is the praise of people. We like making people happy. And if you love that and it begins to puff you up, you might struggle with pride. And in, in, in the gospel of Luke, in Luke 18, Jesus even says, he said this, he said, look, there was a tax collector and a Pharisee in a temple. The Pharisee said, God, thank you so much that I'm not like this man. Because of all the religious activities I did, if that's you, if you struggle with, hey, I do all these good things, and you compare yourself to other people and think, begin to think, I'm better than them, you may struggle with pride. Why does this matter? Because the brother of Jesus, James, in James 4, verse 6, he said, God opposes the proud. And I can tell you, I don't want to be in opposition to God. Do you? I know it goes bad. <laughs> I don't want to be there. So if that's the case, today I want to introduce you to one of the most prideful people in the Bible that I know of. You have a Bible, you have a phone or a Bible, turn to Daniel chapter 4. We're looking at the book of Daniel. We're continuing our series on uh, life in Babylon. And you're going to meet one of the most prideful men I've ever seen. Actually, Morgan talked about this last week. It's about a man named Nebuchadnezzar who is the king of Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar built a 90-foot statue of himself. Cindy, you have a statue of yourself? No, not yet. We'll, we'll work on it. A 90-foot statue of himself and then said everybody's got to bow down and worship it. Now, I was trying to figure out 90 feet, what would that look like? If you go out in the parking lot and look at the steeple, take the ground to the steeple, about 50 feet, and double that. That's how big this statue was of himself. I think Nebuchadnezzar has a pride problem. Wouldn't you say? Maybe. So, looking at this, going into this text, Daniel chapter four, before we get there, the one thing I wanna say is the theme of Daniel, this whole book is that God is in, it's God's sovereignty. God is in control even when it seems like he's not. 
Now, think about why that message alone is so important. This text is written about exiles, God's people who are scattered through the nations. And they're wondering where this God is and they're saying, well, here's what I want you to know. God is in control even when it seems like he isn't. And they need to hear that. So as we read this, I wanna ask two questions and, and then we'll, we'll kind of swing back around. First question is this. When I read this passage of scripture, what does it tell me about the character or who God is? What can I learn? Second thing I wanna say is what can I learn about following and living this out day to day? Okay, so we're gonna try to answer those. Now, if you were tired when you came in, please stay with me. This is a long passage of scripture and we're gonna try to get through it together. I will summarize what I can, but there's a lot in it, okay? So stay with me. We're starting in Daniel 4, verse 1. It says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. So this is like a firsthand account from the king. Pagan king, pagan, prideful king is gonna tell us his experience with the almighty God. That's unique. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Verse four, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, which must be nice, who hoity-toity, uh, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. Now let's stop here. This is the second time this has happened for King Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter two, he had a dream as well. He asked all the wise men to come in and they couldn't interpret the dream for him. Only one man could. Do you know who that was? Daniel. And the only reason Daniel could do that is because God had actually blessed Daniel with the opportunity and ability to do that. So don't think Daniel's some great guy. God is using Daniel. So he has this dream, and here's a summary of the dream. You ready? He had this image in his mind of a giant tree. Goes all the way up to the heavens, and it spreads, the leaves spread. I'm, I feel like I'm dancing right now. We'll just give you an idea. He has a giant tree, spreads the canopy of it, spreads far and wide over the sky. And all the animals can gather underneath this tree and live off of it. And then all of a sudden in verse 13, it says, I have this vision of an angelic being of some sort come in. And in verse 14, this messenger says, he called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim its branches, strip its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee and the birds of its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Now, Another image comes in, let him, so now you have a person who comes in here, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth, let his mind be changed from that of a man and be given the mind of an animal until seven times pass by from him. In medical terms, that's called boanthropy, when a man begins to act like cattle. Congratulations, hopefully nobody struggles with that. Anyways. 17, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. And here's the reason why all of this is happening. Pay attention, it's repeated three times in this one chapter, or we'll give you two. So that the living may know the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Daniel, tell me, what does this mean? Massive tree, cut down, all of a sudden, this man's driven crazy. What does this mean, Daniel? And in 22, Daniel tells him, you, your majesty, are the tree. 
You have become great and strong. Greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Verse 25, but you will be driven away from your people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass. Interesting. And be drenched with dew. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge the most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of earth. Verse 26, the command to leave the stump with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored when you do and acknowledge God. So now you can see how crazy this vision is. We're not done yet. Stay with me. Here we go. 28, all of it happened. Verse 29, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the palace, and listen to the pride come in this. He says this, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Look how good I am. You hear it, right? Pounding his chest. 31, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's gonna happen now. Your royal authority has been taken. You'll be driven away from people, live with the animals, eat grass. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the most high is sovereign and gives these kingdoms to anyone he wishes. Eventually, what's crazy in this, verse 34, he does. He raises his eyes, he acknowledges who God is and it's all given back. Now think about that. Just the, the sheer craziness of this text. You have a man who was your king and he starts acting like a cow and eating grass. He's eating grass. It says his hair grew out like feathers, his, na his nails like the claws of an animal. And all of a sudden, the elders and all these wise men get together and they say, you know who we'd like to have back in charge? The guy who acts like a cow. Doesn't that strike you as strange? Like, yeah, he's crazy, but he's really good. You'll love what he does. Crazy story. So we said there were two questions we wanted to look at throughout this entirety of this and stay with me on this. First thing was this, what can this tell me about God? Now you remember the phrase, God is sovereign over all nations and gives them to anyone he so desires. Now a question comes in my mind because I believe that is true. The question that comes to my mind is God, how could you? Right now, over, overseas, we have the Russian leader, right? Putin is now attacking the Ukraine and you see what's going on and some people are asking, God, how could you allow this man to do that thing? Go back in history's past. God, how could you allow a Hitler, a Stalin, a Mussolini, a Mao, a Pol Pot, a name another leader? God, how could you allow that to happen if you are truly sovereign? That's a huge question. As a matter of fact, it's one of those questions that sometimes divides people and pushes them away from following God. So it'd be wise of us to at least look at it and try to come to some semblance of an answer. So here is my feeble attempt. The first thing I want to tell you as trying to answer this question, it actually comes from Freakonomics, if you ever listen to the podcast. They said these are the three hardest words in the English language. You know what they are? I don't no. There's my answer. I don't know. I'm not God. I don't have infinite knowledge and wisdom. I can't see all vast future. I can't see it. So first I would say is I don't know why God would put or allow those men to be in charge. But I can speak into this from a biblical worldview, what God's word teaches and informs me. First thing I would say, and you're going to see it possibly in your notes and on the screen, is the potential of choice. We see back in Genesis, God, being loving, offered man a choice. And we know when you choose good, 
Usually good things happen, surprising. And when you choose bad things, what happens? Oftentimes bad things happen. We have that choice. So any leader who comes into power, they are still have the opportunity to choose. And I would say, look at it from a, a dad to a child, right? I can be an authority over my kid, but they still have the opportunity to choose what to do. And they will still suffer the consequences. They're still answerable for their actions. So at least we can say to some semblance of it, they have an opportunity to choose. The other thing we have to say within choices is that from Genesis, we know that man struggles with sin. Is there anybody in this room who's perfect? Good, nobody answered. That's whoo, thank goodness we dodged that bullet, right? No one's perfect. Everyone has a sin problem or issue. Everyone does. No one's perfect. Every leader who gets in power is never gonna do enough. They're never gonna be the greatest because they are not God. Instead of looking at the bad kings, just as an example, instead of looking at the bad kings in this, who's one of the best kings in all of scripture? David. David is. David was a great king. He did a lot of good things. He tried to keep God at the center and on the throne. And what happened in David's life? He committed adultery and tried to cover it up with murder. One of the best kings, one of the standard markers and bearers of what a king should be, screwed up. So maybe a reality for us is to say, look, there are no perfect. Man has choice and sin mars that choice. Second thing I would say, suffering leads to change. Anybody been to the doctor recently? Nobody. Congratulations. That's good. When you go to the doctor, why do you go? Don't say that one out loud because we don't necessarily all need to know that. But you see, when I go to the doctor, I go because something's wrong, right? Something feels off. My arm, for some reason, is over here. Like, what's going on? You, you go there because there's pain. Suffering reminds us that things are not the way they should be. The reason I go to the doctor is because I can feel something's off. Pain reminds us. Where is Israel in the book of Daniel? What's going on in their life? They're in exile. In God, back in Deuteronomy, he told his people, before you go to the promised land, I'm gonna say, here's the blessings. If you do these things, good things will happen. If you do these things, bad things will happen. And eventually, other kingdoms will come once you do these bad things, capture and disperse you. He promises them this will happen. And while you're with those kingdoms and you're suffering because of this, eventually you're gonna turn your eyes back to me. And when you do, I will gather you from the nations and restore you. What happened with Nebuchadnezzar? You set yourself up and you suffered because of it. And then all of a sudden you turned and recognized God and he restored you. Suffering reminds us things aren't the way they should be. Now, could I say that all the wars you've experienced in the past, you've seen or read about in the past and future here, can I say that all of those are simply God trying to get people to repent? I can't, I'm not God but I can at least say all the suffering you see in mankind points us to say these, this is not the way it should be. Can we agree on that one? Third thing. Yes, potential of choice, brokenness of man. Yes, we see suffering leads to change. Last one is this. Best way to say this. Um, I like country music. Anybody like country music? Booyah. There's a song by my favorite artist, Garth Brooks, called Unanswered Prayers. Anybody know that one? Perfect. 
And in this song, one of the things he says is he talks about running into basically a girl back in high school that he was praying to, God, please, please, please let us end up together. Can anybody remember praying that prayer? Mine was basketball shots. I'd go out and say, all right, God, if it's me and her, I'll hit this shot. Okay, that, that was a trial, God. Let's try it one more time, right? <laughs> He's praying, God, please make this girl and let's end up together. It doesn't happen that way. They go their separate ways. He ends up marrying another girl. They have a family and at a football game, he runs back into her. And when he does, the conversation goes and he turns around and then he says, I thank God for the gifts in my life that he did not answer the prayer I wanted him to. And what that means, and we see it throughout the book of Daniel, God knows the future. And that means for me, God can take a broken situation and do something immensely better than I've ever imagined with it. And if you don't believe that, let me give you an example. Try that again. Let me give you an example of it. It's the God you follow, right? What happened with Jesus? Jesus is born and there's Herod is in charge. Herod, this Herod who is king, he kills the two and three-year-olds in Galilee because he's afraid of them taking his power. God, how could you allow this? Or the end of Jesus' life, he's on trial with Pontius Pilate and Herod, and what happens? Both of them declare he is innocent. God, how could you allow them to, to pervert justice and crucify an innocent man? And what happens because of that action? The entire world has an opportunity of salvation. We can at least acknowledge the fact God can take a broken messiness and turn it into something immensely great, greater than we could have ever imagined. So it may not answer the question in totality, but I think if we look at the theme of Daniel, we can see, God, you are in control even when it may seem like you're not. And how freeing that is. Second thing. What can I learn about following God from this text? I know Nebuchadnezzar struggles with pride. I know those who are prideful usually set themselves up in opposition to God, and I don't want to be that person. So let's look at Nebuchadnezzar's life. How did pride slide in for him? It was subtle. Go back to chapter four, verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, In other words, he's sitting here and everything seems to be successful. If you go to uh, verse 29 and 30, he's talking about, remember, how great I am. I built this up myself. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps. Look how great I am. You see, his success began to shift in his heart to where he thought, I need to sit in this seat. I'm so good. I got this. Success subtly creeps in, and all of a sudden, and for us, it does it this way. All of a sudden, your 401k looks pretty good. Job's good, maybe you just got a raise. Kids are all healthy, making straight A's. You're getting ready to go on a family vacation, everything looks great. By all the worldly standards, you have it all together. And subtly, you begin to think, man, sure feels good to sit here. You know what God told his people before they entered the promised land? He warned them in Deuteronomy, we have up here, Deuteronomy uh, 6 and 8. Let's go to 6. You read the highlighted part. When the Lord your God brings you into the land he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, to give you, a land with large, flourishing cities, 
houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells, and vineyards and olive groves, then when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that he knows. When things are good, you begin to subtly slip, and I do it too, subtly slip to see, man, maybe this seat is where I belong. And you know there's signs of this. Because the subtleness is one thing, but the longer you try to sit in the seat, the more you're gonna see suffering. Think about Genesis. Mankind, Adam and Eve, decided they wanted to sit in this seat. They ate the fruit, and what happened? The relationship with God was broken. The relationship to one another was broken. The relationship to themselves broken and creation broken. Don't be surprised. If you want to know if I'm struggling with pride or you're struggling with pride, my guess would be a couple things and it's going to be relational. My guess would be first off, your relationship with God is probably weak. One of the first things when you're successful like this that you probably, and I give up all the time, I do this all the time, so this is preaching to the choir, know that, is my prayer life. Because when I'm back here and I'm in the midst of the suffering, what do I do? God, please, God, I need your help. I can't, I can't, I can't, and I'm begging you, God. But when things are going well, I don't talk to him anymore. Your relationship with God, if your relationship with God is suffering, that might be a sign or a symptom of, look, a greater heart issue is going on here. Your relationship with others may start to suffer. Why? Because if I sit in this seat, I carry the burden of being God. Can you do that? It's like David in Saul's armor. Can you juggle all those balls at the same time? Perform, monkey, perform. Like, you can't do it. How do I control all of this stuff? You can't. You weren't meant to. You'll wear out. The stress alone will kill you. Suffering reminds us of change. So how do I avoid it? Well, here's what I would say to start with. Uh, I gave you a country quote. Let me give you a rap quote. I know because everybody in here loves that one. <laughs> Eminem said it best when he said, snap back to reality. You ever, anybody ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Show of hands, there we go. Wow, a lot of people. We need to hang out more. Now, um, uh, if you go to the edge of the Grand Canyon, I'm gonna describe this poorly. It's a giant hole in the ground. Congratulations, you spent a lot of money on vacation to go see a hole. But when you step to the edge of it, how does it make you feel? Shink. Makes you feel small. You ever been to Colorado and you hike up in the mountains and you overlook all the vast, green, lush, growth of God's creation. How does that make you feel? You ever walk by the casket of a loved one who's just recently passed and you feel the brevity of life? How does that make you feel? Now, can you imagine when you actually see God? Think about the times people in the Bible saw and met God for the first time. I'm a man of unclean lips. They're begging God, please don't look at us because I am a sinful man. All of a sudden, when you visualize and see who God truly is, when you get an appropriate view of God, you realize the appropriate smallness of yourself. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar said here. Chapter four, verse 35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing in comparison to God he just saw. 
Appropriate view of God leads to appropriate view of myself. Snap back to reality. And what that naturally leads to is the next thing. I would say this, freedom in confession. The confession goes this way, is God, you are God, and I am not. You're God, and I'm not. There's freedom in that. Do you know why? Because I stop pretending I am. I can let go of those things. Let's go back to that list I mentioned at the beginning and see if this switches. If I find my relational significance, if I find my, my purpose in life, my significance in life found in this relationship with God as a child of his, then look at what this changes. That means if I've been trying to find value in the way I look, I can let go of that. I can accept the blemishes, the faults, the decay. I can accept those things, right? If you're competitive, you can not only admit success, but my value's not in winning all the time. Therefore, I can acknowledge my giftedness and, this is a hard one, my failures. Because it's okay to know that I still struggle with sin. I still am not perfect. Your need to be right will fade away. And now there's an openness to admitting when you're wrong. You're teachable, willing to listen. Instead of saying Yo, all the, uh, yes all the time, I can say no. Instead of not being able to release power, I can be able to delegate because other people have strengths that I may not have. You see, there's freedom in putting God in his appropriate place. Now, and it should naturally lead to this one. Put your hands out like this. Let's see it now. Come on now. Interactive time with Eric. putting your hands out. It should naturally, if I confess and put God in his appropriate place and I confess that, I should be characterized by generosity then. What does Nebuchadnezzar do when this happens? He says, from here on, I will exalt and praise and glorify who? God. Beforehand, he built a statue to himself and now in reference and seeing who God is, all of a sudden now he's saying, no, 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 I will praise God. And here's the thing, I can let go. I can be generous now. Andy Stanley said it this way. He said, look, if God is for me and will take care of me because I pursue his kingdom, that frees me because now I can take care of other people. But if I don't believe God's gonna take care of me, then I've gotta sit here and I've gotta hoard. I can't give material possessions away because who's gonna take care of me? I can't give praise away because who's going to find, where am I going to find value? But if God does these things, now I can give it away. I have a, a friend of mine from college who is trying to live this out. And what he does is he has bought stores and stores, I mean, like just loads of, of um, tools, mechanic tools. And when a neighbor, somebody in the neighborhood needs something, they come to him and say, hey man, I really need this. Do you, do you happen to have it? And he'll tell them, he'll say, look, yeah, you can borrow it or keep it. I'm like, keep it? Yeah. Why would you? And as soon as they ask the question, he knows there's a door there. I can share God. I can tell him why. Because God takes care of me. I can take care of you. To live that way? Whoo, how tough that would be. But that's not all. There's more to the story. Last thing I want to mention, and we haven't talked about it yet, but it's in chapter five. Go to chapter five in Daniel. You're going to be introduced to a man named Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. And what you're going to be, well, I don't think you're going to be surprised by it, really. 
Belshazzar struggles with the same sin of his father. He likes to sit in the driver's seat and yet he doesn't belong there. And he, like his father, has a vision. And he, like his father, the wise men can't interpret it. Only Daniel can. And Daniel comes and he tells him this, verse 18, chapter 5. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. Verse 20. But when his heart became arrogant, and he tried sitting in that seat with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne, stripped of his glory, driven away from his people, given the mind of an animal until he acknowledged who really belongs in that seat, that God is sovereign over all kingdoms. Verse 22, but you, son, that's the worst phrase right there, you, son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Now, I say that. You have this chair, you have my chair. If you imagine, it's a minivan, Woohoo! But this is it. We've got to train the next generation, don't we? As a high school minister, I see high school students come and go. And some retain their faith, but many do not. And I'll tell you this, I get them for maybe four to eight hours total, out of a month. Now, I know that just time is not gonna change and really disciple or transform somebody. Time alone. But look at all the other voices. That's like one day at school. So that means their friends, their teachers, their coaches have a big influence. But I will tell you the most important influence that a, a person has, a child has in the development of their faith, it's you, their parents. A, parent, a child's faith will always be relative to their parents' faith. Statistics show this. Now take it from a, a dad. I want my kids to follow God. I want it desperately. And I don't know that they will. They may go through difficult times. I get that. But what can I do to help in it is the question I ask myself. And here's the advice I'll give to every one of you. It's advice I've been given and seen and so far it looks pretty good. First thing I'll say is this. It is caught, not necessarily taught. In other words, as a parent, you can tell them things, and you know this, I can tell you what to do, but they're watching my actions, aren't they? And what that means then is I, as a parent, have got to get this relationship right. I've got to pursue God. If you want your kid to read God's word, you gotta read God's word. If you want your kid to follow God, you've gotta follow God. If you want him to be involved in church, you've gotta be in church. You model it for him. That is the first step. Model this relationship because it's going to be caught. Second thing, share your stories. Both the good ones and the not so good ones because they need a, a glimpse of reality. I found the best time to do that for our family is usually dinner table or bedtime. Right now at this stage, in this age, that's when it is. To acknowledge Yes, I have faults and flaws and my kids need to hear my stories. Third one, I would say. Huh? Ooh, ha, ha. God is moving. Share, it's not just sharing your stories. Serve together. I can remember, Mom, you might remember this. Dad, you might remember this. Helping at Hazelwood in the Sunday school class. And I can remember, it was around Halloween time as we were handing out little suckers with Kleenex on top, the ghost suckers. 
I can remember that stuff. Serve together as a family. Because if it's caught and you need to model it and you want them to serve, you need to be serving. Maybe it's helping out with VBS. Maybe it's helping in a classroom, greeting people at a door. Maybe it's doing stuff up on stage because there's a gifting you have. Serve together. Last thing I'll say is this one and we'll end it on this. I'm not God and I can't control the decisions my kids will make. And that's a hard thing because I want to make all the decisions for them. So what that naturally drives me to is to say, I got to hit my knees and pray for my kids. Because God, I can't control it. But God, I want them to follow. So I pray and pray and pray and pray. And when I can't do it anymore, I pray again because God, I need to step in. Train and teach the next generation. Here's one way you do that. We do it every Sunday. If you got it, pull it out. The way that Passover, the Jewish festival of Passover, where we get this from, communion, was set up. It was set up as an instructional tool, actually, by God. And he says, when you're having this communal meal as a family, this is a time where your kids are gonna come up and they're gonna ask you, what does this mean? And that means every Sunday you have an opportunity to teach them and to remind ourselves of what has been done for us. 